Before we begin, I'd just like to express my appreciation for all the people who made this center happen. <laughs> this is my first visit here. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, really a beautiful environment for practice. So, thank you to you all. Uh, we'll start with um, a short meditation. Uh, but I wanted to uh, share with you some little instruction that just in the last few years <coughs> uh, I've been working with both in my own practice and in teaching uh, that's very simple but has really uh, been very helpful both for myself and a lot of a lot of people uh, yogis have gotten good feedback about it. And the instruction actually is a line <coughs> that's in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. And you're probably familiar with it. There is a refrain in the discourse that happens 13 different times after each particular set of instructions. And one of the lines in this refrain, which is repeated, uh, but in this specific uh, case is with reference to the body. It says, be mindful, and then in quotes, it's like a direct statement, be mindful, there is a body. To the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So it's very simple, be mindful, there is a body to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. Well, of course, I had read this a million times over the years, but a few years ago, <coughs> for some reason, I read it and the line kind of jumped out at me as uh, being a specific instruction. And the fact that that phrase, there is a body, be mindful, and there's a body is in quotes as I'm told in the Pali, this is in uh, Analio's book, he makes this point. Uh, started to use that phrase uh, in my practice, to actually be repeating that phrase, there is a body, uh, in the sitting, in the walking. So it's not exactly a mental note, but we might say a mental reminder, you know, there is a body. And just as I was exploring this, this was a time when IMS was uh, in the middle of its own construction project. And we were building a new building. And in the process of building, as you will probably know, you know, they frame it. And just in the process of framing it, the studs are in for the walls. But before the walls enclose the building, the frame is there. But you can see through it, so you can see what's going on inside. And so I started using this phrase, there is a body, as a reminder to simply settle in to that grounding awareness, oh yeah, there is a body, as a frame, as the framework. So the mind is not zeroing in on anything, it's holding the more general framework, oh there is a body. 
and then being aware of whatever arises within the frame. And so what may arise is the feeling of the body breathing, or different sensations coming and going, or thoughts or emotions or sounds, whatever. But instead of the mind zeroing in on these objects, it's just holding the frame. There is a body. And allowing the awareness of all these other objects uh, to be there and to see how they come and go. So I'd like to suggest, you know, that you just experiment with this and play and see if it's helpful to you. The last part of that instruction in the text also is a bit illuminating. Be mindful, there is a body, to the extent necessary for clear knowing. So just now, as you sit and you become aware, oh, there is a body, how much effort does that take? Not a lot. It's just to the extent necessary for clear knowing. So for me, it was a reminder not to over-effort. But it's really a question of relaxing into that awareness. Just relaxing, there is a body, to the extent necessary for clear knowing. It's very simple. Uh, And continuous mindfulness, which suggests that we keep that awareness you know, with whatever's arising within that frame. So we'll just sit for a little bit, and I may remind you from time to time of this. Um, It'll be interesting for you just to see whether this is helpful or not. Um, It allows for the experience of the body breathing and everything else without a forcing, without an efforting, without a striving because we're holding that more general framework. I found it helpful to repeat the phrase periodically as a way of coming back to the simplicity.
repeating the phrase, there is a body, settling into that simple awareness of the body sitting as a framework, and then aware of whatever arises within it. Within the frame, there is a body. You might be aware of the sensations of the body breathing, or other sensations, or sounds, or thoughts, 
all arising within that framework.
Be mindful there is a body to the extent necessary, just to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness.
using the phrase and the felt sense of there is a body as a framework for being aware of whatever arises within it. But grounding the awareness in the frame.
So if you found that helpful at all, um, I also found it interesting using that same framework in the walking meditation. Just in walking, and especially walking uh, at a more normal speed rather than necessarily the very slow walking. Just in walking, there is a body becomes the frame, and then simply being aware of whatever's felt within the frame. And the experience very often is just somewhat ironically losing a sense of the body and the experience simply being sensations in space. You know, we have that frame and then movement and then simply aware of what's felt within the frame and no self, no I, no body, it's just <laughs> sensations being known, sensations moving through space. Uh, anyway, it, uh, it's something to play with if you found it of interest. So this afternoon, um, the title of the talk is what is mindfulness and what isn't it? <laughs> what it's not. Uh, because especially given the great uh, interest you know, and spread of mindfulness teachings now in the country in all sorts of venues, you know, reaching out from meditation centers to you know, business and schools and uh, neuroscience labs, and the military, and it's just, you know, it's amazing. It's the mindfulness revolution. Uh, but I think it would be helpful to clarify, uh, given the popularization of it, what exactly mindfulness is, and to be uh, discerning of what it isn't. So to ask what is mindfulness, somebody actually asked me, I was sitting in the staff room at IMS, uh, and some, somebody was visiting and they said, can you say just in a few words what mindfulness is? And I thought to myself, it's a bit like asking, you know, what is art? Or what is love? Please just say in a few words. <laughs> uh, it's hard. Uh, so this will be more than a few words. <laughs> But maybe it'll maybe it'll provide a framework of understanding. So the first thing that often comes to mind, you know, if somebody says, "Well, what is mindfulness?" The first thing that we might respond is, "Well, it's living in the moment." You know, and that's that's a big part of it. It's like, as you know from your practice, we spend an inordinate amount of time lost in thoughts of the past, lost in thoughts of the future. So being in the present, just coming back and being in the present is a first step. But it's really not enough, because there's something which I call black lab consciousness. So you know, dog, the black labs, and it could be any, any breed or really any animal, but I have a particular fondness for black labs just because they're so friendly and playful and engaging. Well, as far as I can tell, they're living in the present. 
you know, they are really in the present. Just, you know, aware of sights and sounds and particularly smells. Uh, you know. They don't look mindful. <laughs> you know, it's hard to say. It is a projection, <laughs> granted. But they certainly don't seem mindful. But they're in the present. So mindfulness has to mean something else. It, ha it has to mean something in addition to being present. It's like necessary but not sufficient. And so we need to kind of expand our view a little bit. So then we might think of mindfulness, okay, we're in the present, and then we might think of it, well, it's the observing power of mind. You know, it's, it's knowing that we know, right, which maybe the black labs don't have that, uh, you know, interest <laughs> or capacity. So there was a woman uh, who was at a retreat and she came up after a talk and she said she had recently been on a cruise and in the room, her room, her cabin on the ship, you know, there was the map the ship with the layout and the arrow, you are here. And she said that for the whole cruise, that was her mantra, wherever she went, you are here. <laughs> right? So that's, that's kind of this observing power of the mind. And we can and have all experienced the power of this when we really pay attention to the difference in our experience between being lost in a thought and being aware that we're thinking. Now, there's a huge difference. As you know, you know from your practice, very often thoughts come and we're not aware that they've arisen and we get caught up in the content, content um, and are carried along on this train of association. You know, we don't know that we've hopped on the train we have no idea where the train is going, but at some point we become aware. You know, it's like we wake up to the fact that we're thinking. So at that point, it's the observing power of the mind that comes into play. And you know the difference. You know, when we're lost in the thought, it's really, it's like being lost in the movies of our minds, you know, in the drama, in the story. And yet, as soon as we wake up and become aware that we're thinking, as soon as this observing power of mind comes into play, really something very interesting happens. We begin to really see and experience and understand the essentially empty nature of thought. You know, here are these thoughts which are so compelling in our lives when they're unnoticed. They're basically driving our lives. You know, thoughts come, go here, go there, do this, do that, get married, get divorced. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like this, the thoughts are like little dictators of the mind when they're not noticed. So they have this tremendous power. And yet when they are noticed, we see that they're little more than nothing. They're just, <laughs> they're just these little energy blips that are completely ephemeral and insubstantial. So this is quite revolutionary to really understand this about our minds and the nature of a thought. And this comes through the observing power of the mind. Right? So, 
when we're lost in a thought, we may be present. You know, we're present and lost. So we need that observing power of the mind to really know what we're experiencing. But this observing power is also not enough. And there's a very important uh, distinction to make between perception, the mental factor of perception, and mindfulness. So the observing power of mind, at least in big part, is the factor of perception. And perception in the Buddhist understanding, it means that faculty of recognition. We recognize what the present object is. So we recognize man or woman or house or building or thought, right? And the, you know, the tool of mental noting, for example, is really about perception. We're, we're strengthening the clear perception of what's arising. And the perception can then serve as a vehicle for mindfulness, and I'm going to get more into that. So the first thing we want to know about perception and understand our experience of it is that sometimes perception is accurate, sometimes it's inaccurate. And there are many examples of inaccurate perception and one which I understand um, has been demonstrated very clearly right in this hall. So just over lunch, uh, Gil and Andrea uh, were telling me about the birds that kept flying into the window, pecking on the window, seeing the reflection and thinking there's another bird there. That's misperception. <laughs> it's like the bird is perceiving something that's inaccurate. Well, we do this a lot also. We misperceive things, and sometimes in very significant ways, sometimes in humorous ways. So once I was on retreat, it was the first time I was sitting with Saida Upandita. This was in 1984. Um, very, you know, as you might know and know of him, a very demanding teacher, and it was a very strict retreat. And there was a lot of pressure. Uh, so I was doing walking meditation outside, and I looked up at a window in the room that he was staying in, uh, and I saw him watching me, you know, do the walking meditation. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I slow down, you know, lift, move, place. <laughs> so I'm going, you know, and under the gaze <laughs> of the master. Uh, so I'm walking back and forth, and I look up again. He's still watching. You know, and this, goes, this is going on for about 10 or 15 minutes. And meanwhile, you can imagine my mind state, <laughs> you know, pretending to be mindful, but really. <laughs> so finally, I don't know, after 15 or 20 minutes, I just didn't understand, you know, why he was standing there watching me. So I just looked up and I looked a little more carefully 
And it wasn't Upandita at all, it was a lampshade. <laughs> so I had created this whole inner environment. I had created a whole mind world based on a misperception. So one of the things we need to understand about this factor of recognition is sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not accurate. An example of playing with this in meditation practice in a way that was very helpful for me. Um, so one time I was sitting and I was just going through a lot of sadness. You know, that was the emotion that was coming up. And I was noting sadness, sadness, sadness. But it really felt locked in. You know, in some way I just felt caught in the sadness. So at a certain point, I got interested in why, you know, what, what's going on here? Why, why am I so caught in this? So I looked a little more carefully at what I was feeling, and I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. And these emotions are kind of close, but they're really different. They're different feelings. And it was so interesting to me because as soon as the perception became accurate, it was as if I could align my awareness with what was actually there before it was slightly misaligned. And so I wasn't able to actually be accepting, you know, because I was slightly off. As soon as I got aligned with what was happening, then the acceptance could be there and the emotion started to wash through. So that was just an interesting thing to learn, you know, about the relationship of accurate perception to acceptance and mindfulness. The reason that this observing power of mind, or the factor of perception, of recognition, is not enough, it's not yet mindfulness, is that very often, even when we're perceiving things accurately, you know, so we are recognizing what's actually there, but we are often looking at what's happening, observing what's happening through a filter of wanting or aversion. You know, we can be looking at things and if they're pleasant, we're wanting them to continue or wanting them to get stronger. If there's the filter of aversion, we're looking at it and maybe recognizing it accurately, but wanting it to go away, you know, not liking it. If there's desire and aversion, then again, it's not mindfulness. So the perception is there, we're in the present, we're knowing what's going on, we're observing it, we're recognizing it accurately, so all of that is there, but it's not yet mindfulness because we're looking through a filter you know, of unwholesome mind states. So just a few examples of this, of the 
filter of desire of the wanting mind, because there's no shortage of examples, you know, and I think we're all familiar. But one of my favorites, I've used this example often, it's what I call catalog consciousness. So, have you ever made the initial mistake of opening a catalog and then turning pages waiting for something to want? Well, nothing on this page. Maybe on the next page I'll want something. <laughs> Not yet. It's like we're wanting to want. <laughs> you know, we're, we're attached to wanting. And you know the sense of relief when we finally get to the last page, we can put the <laughs> catalog down. <laughs> it's like we're being let out of the grip of desire. You know, and the sense of ease, which comes from that. Well, I mean, that's a rather blatant example <laughs> of desire and wanting, but it comes up a lot in our meditation practice, you know, just with pleasant meditative states. Or there's aversion, you know, the filter of aversion. We can be recognizing what's happening. How often, you know, are we experiencing painful sensations in the body? You know, they're unpleasant. This, you know, burning or tightness or pressure, or, you know, in, in a very unpleasant way. We're in the present. We're observing it. We're recognizing it. So all that's there but we're observing it through the filter of aversion. We don't like it. We're, we're watching it so it will go away. So that's not yet mindfulness. And I had a, a very powerful example of this. I'll give you a few examples. But one, uh, again, which I've talked a, lo a lot about over the years because it was such a, a learning for me, so of, of all the various afflictive emotions that you know, can arise, the one that was most powerful for me in my practice over a long time uh, was the emotion of fear. I just, lots of fear was coming up, and not about anything in particular. It was just like the primal emotion. I had no idea what it was about, or, and often it was completely irrational. You know, there was, at one point when it was really intense, there was fear about going from sitting to standing. You know, it, was, it didn't make any sense. And yet that's, it was like just the raw primal emotion was coming up. So I had been working with this for a long, many, many months. You know, obviously not in every moment, but it was a predominant experience. So I was recognizing it. I mean, I knew it was fear. And I was noting it, fear, fear, fear. It took many, many months of being with it. And then I remember I was doing walking meditation. I was actually in the same place I was walking when <laughs> I was looking at the lampshade. <laughs> so in right in front of IMS. Uh, walk, and then something shifted after all of this time of being with the fear. Something shifted in me and the shift was expressed in the phrase, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment of acceptance. In all that time that I'd been with it, and recognizing it, and thinking that I was being mindful, I was not being mindful. I was 
being with it, wanting it to go away because it's very unpleasant. You know, and so I was deluding myself. And it was only when the mind finally dropped into a place of genuine acceptance, that was really the first moment of mindfulness. And it was so interesting. First, first that phrase, it's okay, for the rest of my life it's okay, that became, it's okay became a great mantra for me. You know, with difficult experiences, I would often bring, remind myself, it's okay, just let me feel it, just let me be with it, whatever it might be. You know, so it's like a shortcut reminder to be accepting. And what was so interesting in that moment of genuine acceptance and, and mindfulness, that whole uh, constellation of fear and all the sensations, the whole thing washed through. It, it was totally amazing. The acceptance allowed it to flow. You know, and it's not that you know, fear never comes up again, but the relationship to it has changed. You know, so it's no longer being with it with aversion, wanting it to go away, pushing against it. It's with more mindfulness. Okay, it's okay, let it be here. And in that relationship to it, we're seeing that fear or anything else, pleasant or unpleasant, it all has the nature to arise and pass. Everything is impermanent. And I saw so clearly how we lock things in through wanting and aversion. That's what, that's what kind of damns the flow. You know. So this points just to an important further understanding of what constitutes mindfulness. Right? It's being in the present, but that's not enough. It's the observing power of mind, so we know we're knowing and we're recognizing and hopefully coming to an accurate recognition, but that's not enough. We really need to be in the present, to know what's happening without desire and aversion, with acceptance, and then we're really entering the field of mindfulness. So, one of the little catchphrases I use to watch out for these filters in the mind is to keep an eye out for what I call the in order to mind. Are we with something in order for something to happen? If there's an order to mind, that's a signal that we're not genuinely accepting. We want it to be different in some way or another. And sometimes it's so tricky. We think we're being mindful, but we're not. And so I had an, I had an example of this um, practicing in Burma, uh, with Saida Upandita. And I'd been there for some time, I'd been there for maybe a month or two. And the practice was seemed to be going well, you know, my whole body was like just a, a free flow of energy and light and felt pretty good, except for this one kind of knot in my neck. You know, it was just, so everything was open except for this one place. So I go in and give a report to him, 
on my experience describing that kind of nice, pleasant free flow of energy, but there's an energy block. You know, and, and I thought I was just describing this objectively. It's just, yeah, there's the free flow and there's a block. He got on my case for calling it a block. Because just in using that word, already there's desire and aversion. Block, no good, have to open it, you know, don't like this, want this. And it was so interesting to me because I thought it was just an objective report, not seeing kind of the defilements that were in the mind. And he was, he was very good at pointing out defilements. <laughs> this was <laughs> what was really there wasn't a bl- I wasn't pers- I wasn't experiencing a block. That was a concept I was overlaying on it. I was experiencing tightness. You know, just there was the sensation of tightness. There's no sensation called block. And when I could be just with the tightness then and really be accepting of it, then it's possible to see all the nuances of change within the tightness. You know, it's not one unchanging thing. You know, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of variation. So this is just an example. If there's an an in order to mind, we're with something in order for something to happen, that's a signal, that's a feedback. You know, so we can in our practice keep an Keep an eye out for this. Okay, so now we're in the domain of mindfulness. We're we're in the present and we know what's happening, we're observing, and it's not through the filter of desire and aversion. So this brings us to a fuller, or going into a fuller meaning of the word sati. You know, which is how mindfulness is, sati is the Pali word. The root meaning of sati is to remember. And so one of the meanings of mindfulness is remember, of course, remembering the present moment. That's, that's in some way, perhaps it's most essential meaning. But it also means remembering or calling to mind what is skillful and what is unskillful. Wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind. So it's remembering that, it's bringing that to mind. And this begins to connect us with the ethical dimension of mindfulness, which is often not talked about, you know, in kind of the spread of mindfulness uh, in the culture, that actually mindfulness has an ethical value, it's ethically wholesome. Because it's only mindfulness if wholesome states of mind are present. If desire is present, if we're looking through that filter, it's not mindfulness. If aversion is present, it's not mindfulness. In the Abhidhamma teachings, mindfulness is a wholesome factor, and it calls all the other wholesome factors to arise with it, and it's never associated with unwholesome factors. You know, and so, in our exploration of what mindfulness means, it gets very interesting to explore the mind in this fuller sense. What's, what's really going on? What, what factors are arising in the moment? Is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? 
some of you, uh, you know, may have heard or come into contact with Saito Utejaniya, a younger Burmese Saito. One of the things he emphasizes, which I found to be really helpful in this regard, is he encourages people a lot in their practice, what he calls to check the attitude in the mind. You know, so as we're going along with whatever we're experiencing, frequently, uh, just to check the attitude. The attitude means how we're relating to what's happening. And I found this a very useful tool, technique, to actually illuminate whether wholesome factors are present, whether unwholesome factors are present. So I'll just give you a, a very simple example of this. So I was sitting and just feeling the breath. I mean, it was completely simple, you know. And I was just feeling the breath come in, feeling the breath go out. And then I remembered this instruction of Saito Tejaniya, you know, just check the attitude. So that's the question I asked, well, what's the attitude in my mind? And it was so interesting, in the very moment of asking the question, it wasn't even for the answer, it was just to ask the question, I felt my mind relax back from a wanting that I didn't even know was there. You know, but in contrast, once the mind relaxed back, I saw, oh yeah, as I was feeling the breath, it was wanting concentration. It was wanting calm. Sometimes there's even kind of the wanting of the next breath. You know, it's like, just we're leaning forward a little bit. And simply by asking the question, well, what's the attitude? The mind, the mind relaxed, more open, more free, and then it was just feeling the breath you know, with, with wholesome states. So there's one teaching of the Buddha, uh, among many, that I just found so direct and powerful a reminder. He said that what we frequently think about and ponder upon becomes the inclination of our mind. So it's so obvious. <laughs> so when we're in the habit of thinking about certain things or, you know, really having certain thought patterns or emotional patterns, when we go over them again and again and again, from the neuroscience perspective, those neural pathways are deepening. You know, and it becomes easier to have those same thoughts or those same emotional patterns happen again and again. They become the inclination of our mind. So given that, it's really a challenge to us to be mindful of what patterns we perhaps are unconsciously strengthening. You know, because they are going to become the inclination of our mind. And so here's the meaning of mindfulness, of calling to mind what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, really is, is very important. And it's not to assume that, you know, we do this and all of a sudden all desire disappears, or all aversion disappears. But if we 
are practicing mindfulness and this dimension of mindfulness, calling to mind what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, it just reinforces our understanding and our recognition. Yes, what's happening in our minds is important. It has consequences. It's not just something of the moment. No, it's creating a pattern. It's deepening a pathway. So this is another meaning of mindfulness. When we see that uh, and, and take in what we frequently think about or ponder upon becomes the inclination of our mind, there are so many uh, examples of this then playing out in our lives. I had just a delightful experience of this. I was in a department store buying something and kind of an older guy, I don't know how old he was, seemed older than me, because I'm now in that category, <laughs> but <laughs> it's all relative. But this older guy, he seemed older, he came up to the checkout guy and he was, he was buying something. So he paid and the, the salesperson said, have a nice day, you know, as they often do. And without missing a beat, he said, I intend to. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's a good neural pathway to deepen. <laughs> You know, I intend to, <laughs> because our intentions have power. <laughs> you know, and you could just see, yeah, he <laughs> he was shaping his life, you know, with that thought. And so, we can really do this if we understand the importance of doing it. Ajahn Sumedho, who I'm sure most of you know of, you know, the, uh, American monk who was in the Thai forest tradition and brought it back to the West a lot. Uh, he, he had a teaching which has always uh, struck me as being really helpful. He said, our practice is not to follow the heart, but to train the heart. You know, and so much of kind of in spiritual circles, you know, it's just follow your heart. Well, one of the things I think we see, and this is one of the great uh, challenging virtues of Vipassana practice, we begin to see that not everything in our heart <laughs> is worth following. <laughs> You know, we're a mix. There's a great mix of motivations, and some things are beautiful and wholesome and skillful, and some things are not. And so our task is not just to follow our heart. It's to see what's there, to be mindful of what's there, knowing that what we frequently do will become the inclination, you know, of our mind, of our heart. And so we really want to be training our hearts to have this discerning wisdom 
I mean, one one application of this, which I'm sure you've all practiced uh, to varying degrees, is uh, the practice of metta. We can choose to cultivate the metta channel within us. You know, sometimes I think of, you know, mindfulness is like taking control of the inner remote. You know, we have a remote control. And what channel are we on at any particular time? Are we on the judging channel? Are we on the aversion channel? Well, if we see it, you know, and once we you know, recognize it, we don't have to, so we, can, we can just, oh, let's, let's go to the meta channel. So, what is the cause for metta to arise? The cause is seeing the good in others. And it's just so interesting. So often our habit of mind, you know, when we're with other people, what really jumps out of us, out at us, is what we don't like. You know, so it triggers the critical mind, the judgmental mind. We see all their annoying habits and all what irritating things they do. Well, let's just, you know, a particular pattern. And if we can see that, if we can be mindful of it, calling to mind what's skillful, what's unskillful, choosing the meta channel, and then focusing on actually what is good in the person. And it doesn't mean being sentimental. You know, it, it doesn't mean that we're ignoring the totality of the person. We can, we can have a very full appreciation of the whole mix of qualities in them. But what are we focusing on? What are we giving attention to? So this is, this is all made possible when we're mindful. When we are actually aware of what's going on in ourselves. We're aware of what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. We're aware that what's arising in our mind over and over again becomes its inclination. So it inspires us to make wiser choices. So then the question is, given all this, so now we hopefully have a little better understanding of what mindfulness means in its fullness. Right? It's not just being in the present, it's not just knowing and recognizing what's there. It's being present in a particular way. It's being present free of the unwholesome factors, free of desire, free of aversion. And then understanding the fullness of mindfulness in calling to mind what's wholesome, calling to mind what's unwholesome, so it reminds us to make wiser choices. The question then arises, well, what does all this have to do with liberation? Because that's what the Buddha, the Buddha declared in the opening paragraph of the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the direct path you know, to the overcoming of grief and sorrow and lamentation, to the realization of the true way, to the realization of Nibbana. So, what's the connection between mindfulness and freedom? At the retreat I just finished teaching at Spirit Rock, so I opened one talk with that question. And somebody was at the talk, 
and said, she had been wondering about that for the last 25 years. <laughs> Which is what is the connection <laughs> between being mindfulness, between being mindful and freedom. So, in case any of you have been wondering, <laughs> I just thought I'd give a <laughs> five minute. <laughs> when we're mindful, when we're actually mindful in all the ways that I talked about, what is it that we see? Well, we see what it is that's arising, unobscured by desire and aversion, but what we also see with greater and greater clarity are the three characteristics. We see, we experience very directly the changing nature, just the flow that whatever has the nature to arise will pass away. You know, that line is found a lot in the texts. Just that one line. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And as it said, you know, many people heard that line and got enlightened. So I'll say it once more. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. I mean, the implications of that are profound. But it's so ordinary, we don't even, we don't really give it much attention, you know. But if we really understood that, if we really saw that, not just on an intellectual level, but we were seeing it, you know, in our practice and in our lives, we wouldn't be attached, because we would know that everything is arising and passing. If we're not attached, we don't suffer. But as we know, we do suffer <laughs> because we're attached, because we're not seeing it. So mindfulness allows us, and this is our practice, mindfulness is in the service of wisdom. The reason we're being mindful is so that we can begin to see with greater and greater clarity the changing nature, the changing flow. And in that, we also see the dukkha aspect, the unreliability, the unsatisfying quality. Things can't ultimately be satisfying precisely because they don't last. You know, so even though things can be pleasant and we can enjoy different experiences, they're not going to provide a lasting completion or you know, a fulfilling sense of peace. They don't have that capacity so we see that, we see that clearly. And we see the selfless nature of it all. You know, the ungovernability of it. That things are following their own laws. Things arise out of conditions, pass away when the conditions pass. So this just becomes increasingly clear. One of the things I love to do on retreat, and I do a lot of self-retreat now at home. So, in reading the suttas, you know, so I'll do a little reading uh, when I'm on retreat. And of course, reading the suttas on retreat, somehow, you know, they really go in in a very different way, at least in my experience, than if I'm reading them just in the busyness of my life. 
And one of the big differences that I found, and this was true for many years, that I would read the teachings, you know, read the suttas, and read them uh, mostly as being descriptions of how things are, descriptions of our reality, what we're experiencing. But in recent years, you know, being on retreat and reading the suttas, I've begun to take them not as descriptions, but as instructions. And that has made a huge difference. So instead of reading and, oh yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good description of things. Yeah, things are impermanent. <laughs> I would take different lines, like the one I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the guided sitting. But I would go through, and different lines would jump out at me as being an instruction to do, rather than a description to agree with. So one of the lines, which again uh, happens frequently in the suttas, which uh, I found to become, has become a very powerful practice, has to do with the wisdom aspect that mindfulness serves. Okay, so we're, we're practicing mindfulness in the service of wisdom. That's its connection to liberation. And there's a very direct line. It's almost like a shortcut to freedom. And it's really short. You know, we can get right there in the moment. So one of the teachings that we find in seeing impermanence, which happens when we're being mindful, right? when in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it is not agitated. When it's not agitated, it personally attains Nibbana. So this is, this is like right to Nibbana. Impermanence, not clinging, non-agitation, Nibbana. So again, taking this from a description of things to an instruction, what I started doing is turning the mindfulness, the attention, at those times when I'm experiencing the flow of change. And many of you probably have had this experience where you're just in the momentum of the flow. You know, and seeing just the arising and passing of sensations or sounds or thoughts or whatever, we're really experiencing just things coming and going. We're experiencing the impermanence. At that time, to look back at the mind and to see that at that time of experiencing impermanence, the mind is in fact not clinging. Because if it were clinging, it wouldn't be seeing the change. You follow? And so, at those times when we're in that flow and we're seeing the change, turn the attention back, and we have very direct experience of the quality, the nature of the non-clinging mind. You know, we're, we're in that. And this is really the third foundation of mindfulness. 
You know, it's mindfulness of the mind. But we're turning back to it right at this time of seeing impermanence. And so then we just hang out for a little bit in that experience of the mind that is not clinging. And then we begin to see, yes, when it's not clinging, it is not agitated. And I just found it really interesting Uh, you know, of, often when we think of agitation of mind, we may think of it in some gross sense, you know, just a lot of agitation and restlessness. But it also refers to the very subtle agitation of just the slight reactivity of liking and not liking, the just, you know, little bits uh, of agitation. So to see and to experience when the mind is not clinging, it is not agitated. So we're already back, you know, we're mindful of the mind when it's not clinging, so we're experiencing the mind very directly, not clinging, and then we say, oh yeah, this is not agitated. So we're experiencing a quality of stillness, of non-agitation, right in those moments. And we can get a very intuitive sense that it's out of that non-agitation that opening to freedom, opening to nibbana is possible. That is, that we could say is the ground out of which illumination happens. So it's a very direct, it's an experiential application of the teachings as an instruction, not simply as a description. So this is what mindfulness is in the service of. This is why we practice mindfulness, and it's why the Buddha declared at the beginning of the sutta, this is the direct path to liberation. So I'd just like to close with a few comments uh, made by a group of folk who were in a six-week mindfulness training program in schools and there were second graders <laughs> and a friend of ours was doing this program in the schools I think maybe it was once a week, I don't, I don't quite know, but it was, it was over a six-week period teaching mindfulness and at the end of the six weeks you know they asked the kids you know how they liked or what they thought of mindfulness and some of the comments were Mindfulness calms me down. Mindfulness helps me go to sleep at night. This, I think, is my favorite. Mindfulness is the best thing I have done in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Second grader. <laughs> and then the last one was, I love mindfulness. <laughs> So I think that kind of covers the range <laughs> of appreciating its value. <laughs>